Knowing is one of the central themes of this particular epistle. God does not desire us to be in flux or uncertain. We are not in the dark as to the things of God and the state of our souls. As one commentator said, we are emancipated and delivered out of the realm of tentative conclusions. There's a certain dogma here. There are certain absolutes, and we will see how the apostle keeps on repeating these absolutes throughout the text. There are certain things, possibly, to you, for me, that we need to hold dearly, to hold fast. This epistle will teach us to know ourselves both before our incorporation into Christ and after. It will tell us the truth about the fallen world and how we are to live in this world that Paul describes, excuse me, as John describes, as filled with darkness. And we will see in this text the glorious gospel of grace and what it is like to truly know God. This epistle is all about knowing the truth and knowing God. Here are just a few verses in chapter 2, verse 5. This is how we know we are in Him. Chapter 2, verse 13. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. 2.20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. 2.21. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. 3.2. Dear friends, now we are all children of God. This is a truth to be known. 3.14. We know that we have passed from death to life. Again, to know, to know, we belong to the truth. 3.19, 3.24, we know that he lives in us. You, dear children, are from God. This great truth is from chapter 4, verse 4. We know that we live in him and he is in us. 4.13, this is how we know that we love the children of God. 5.2, and if you read 5.18 through 20, we know, we know, We know. John is not about giving us vague truth. He is giving us solid biblical truth. And that is where we go this morning. To the most basic, the most arguably fundamentally important truth presented to us as part of the gospel. Seeing John's purpose in writing, we can see that the epistle is written to the church, to Christians. John wants us specifically to believe in Christ and to know Him and to know that eternal life and that assurance of eternal life that He brings us. If we think of John's great gospel, that other work, he wrote in chapter 20, verse 31, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's His purpose for the gospel. Summarized in that statement in chapter 20. John is now writing to the church, perhaps the church in Ephesus, sometime late in the first century, and he's writing so that they may know Christ and their identity in Christ and in knowing who they are, that they may have assurance of eternal life. In today's reading, we will be reminded of a faith grounded in history in the person of Jesus 
As the Apostle Peter reminds us in his second epistle in the first chapter, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Christ did come in the flesh, and we are left with numerous eyewitnesses. The original audience to which John was speaking was a group of Christians that were confronted with internal and external challenges. Specifically, the external challenges from the docetic heresy and early forms of Gnosticism. The common denominator between those two heretical ideas concerns the implausibility that God could become flesh. God could not be flesh. And John is specifically writing against that heresy. Docetic views on Jesus range from seeing him as a normal man that was temporarily filled with the Holy Spirit to the idea that Jesus was merely a phantom that didn't have real flesh and blood. He nearly merely appeared to be a man. Gnosticism is somewhat similar but goes a step further because there's a dualistic element that the spiritual and the physical are separate from one another. And so God becoming man to a Gnostic is completely absurd. On the face of this late first century heresy that was going to plague the church for a couple of hundred years, John writes as an eyewitness authority, of the reality of the one God who really and truly did become flesh, human. And all of this was written so that we and the original audience would know and believe in Christ. As we turn to the text today, I want us to see three main points. First, we are reminded that the Christ of history and the Christ of faith are one and the same. Secondly, we are reminded of the importance of fellowship with other believers, of the fellowship of the church. Thirdly, we will be reminded that we have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Very simple ideas, but very basic and worth our contemplation and consideration because this is where John begins. He does not begin his epistle with a typical greeting, but he goes right to the heart of the matter, to Jesus. And so there's where we will turn. Turn to page 8 of your worship guide. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Let us pray.
Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible passage in your word. Lord, be with us as we consider the nuances and the depth of what you have for us here. Be with our hearts and our minds. Fill our minds with the truth of your word and inflame our hearts with the passion that this great apostle had. Lord, we come waiting for your spirit to fill us. Be with us now. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when I was a young boy, I had a passion, we might even say an obsession, for the culture and the country of Austria. After going to a children's concert at the Tulsa Philharmonic as a fourth grader, I became enamored with classical music. I was a weird kid. Um, Mozart became my favorite composer, and he was Austrian. So many of the great composers had spent time in Austria or were from Austria. They had worked in the capital city, Vienna, and I dreamed of visiting that place someday. And then, in a recent trip back to Oklahoma, to my house, my mother had a paper I had written in the sixth grade that was simply titled, Austria, Land of Beauty. I loved everything about this country that I read, minus the World War II stuff, the history, the food, the culture, the music, the mountains. And despite all that I read and all of the photos I saw, nothing could prepare me for my first visit there. As a college student, I was, in a word, overwhelmed. I spent two years even studying German for that moment when I could go and speak to the locals, to be part of that culture. I finally walked the streets where Beethoven, Brahms, Mozart, and Schubert had walked. I breathed the same air in my mind. I ate Wiener Schnitzel in Vienna for the first time. Apfelstrudel was probably my favorite, but nothing wrong with Schnitzel either. I saw vistas or vistas in the Alps that no photograph could ever replace. I looked upon the handiwork of God and creation and was overwhelmed with a sense of awe. And that is absolutely nothing compared to what John says in our text. That I looked upon, he said, I saw with my eyes, I heard, I touched. In an almost apostolic amazement and wonder, John says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. Who or what did John look upon? Who did they touch? That which was from the beginning. If this opening sounds somewhat familiar, that's good. It should draw us back to the opening of John's gospel where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Then we read on in our epistle passage in 1 John verse 2, we see that the life was made manifest, and we have seen it. 
Compare that to the language again later in the Gospel of John in the first chapter. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The one that sent John into ecstatic speech and heightened metaphorical language is none other than Christ himself. The one that was from the beginning. In him was life. And that life was made manifest, he tells us. And we've seen it. John is ecstatic about Jesus. You know, the one he's heard. John heard him preach and teach in the temple. He says, we heard the sermon on the mount. Did anyone ever speak with such wisdom as this? Have we ever heard the scribes or the Pharisees speak like that? We were with him for three and a half years. He forgave sins. He spoke words that no one ever spoke before or since. And you know what else John says that he did? We saw him. John, in apostolic wonderment, says it two different ways. I mean, look at it. We looked upon him. We saw him. And he adds this little bit with our eyes. How else are you going to see somebody? John is amazed that he has beheld Jesus with his eyes. We saw him heal paralytics, men born blind from birth, leprosy and all manner of diseases. We saw him cast out demons. We saw him laugh and weep. We saw him transfigured on a mountaintop in bright, glorious light where the Shekinah glory of God comes down and Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah. We looked and saw him calm the sea and the storm with his word. We looked upon him as he went to Jerusalem. We looked upon him as he was nailed to a cross, as he died, was buried, and was completely dead. And rose again. We ate with him. We talked with the risen Lord. And you know what else John says? We touched him. We handled the word of life with our hands. After he rose again, we were so slow to believe, John says, that Thomas even said, Unless I place my hands into his side and the nail-pierced hands, I will not believe that Jesus rose. And Thomas now believes. Luke reminds us in chapter 24 that Jesus said, See my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Do you know... What the apostles, except for John, gave up for that truth. They died as martyrs for that truth. That Jesus rose from the dead and that he was God incarnate. He was no mere phantom. No one would die for a lie like that. But here's the thing John tells us. This one Jesus that we heard, that we saw, that we looked upon, that we touched with our hands. He was from the beginning. 
meaning eternity. If we've ever lost anything in the church today, it is the awe and the wonder that John has when he contemplates and reflects on Jesus, that is on God himself. You see that Jesus was from the beginning. Jesus was there in the burning bush speaking to Moses. He was there when God parted the sea. He was there establishing an eternal everlasting covenant with Abraham. He was there when the stars, the sun and the moon were put in place. And he was there when a pile of dust had God's breath added to it to become a human being. We heard him. This is the one we heard. He spoke words of life to us. We saw God. We touched God. John is joyfully beside himself to tell us where he's been and who he's been with. Jesus was not a great moral teacher that was martyred or a phantom. Jesus is God in the flesh. Look with me at the end of verse 1 into 2. We read this one that was from the beginning came concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. Notice that passage that continues on about Jesus. Think back again to John's gospel. Jesus is the word that became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. He is the word in John's gospel, but he's also the way, the truth, and the life. John loves this Greek word, zoe, life. He uses that more than any other word to describe Jesus. Or I should say he uses that more than any other writer in the New Testament. That Jesus is the life. And once again in this opening few verses of his epistle, John tells us that Jesus is the life. He came concerning the word of life. And that life was made manifest. Eternal life in Christ. There can be little doubt of who John is talking about. He once again in the passage we just read reminds us that he's seen the word of life. But there are at least two other points I want to make about this. First, John says that the life was manifest. The word is chosen very carefully. It's the idea of someone or something being revealed or made clear. Jesus revealed the invisible God. Jesus who through shadow and type in the Old Testament, is fully revealed. It is He who was the Passover Lamb, or that the Passover Lamb foreshadowed. He is the Lamb of God revealed in Christ. The fullness of time had come, and Jesus and His Word were revealed, made manifest, made known. John would also remind us that Jesus did more than reveal a carpenter from Nazareth. Again, I labor this point, but for good reason. In John's gospel, he would remind his audience of Jesus' words found in chapter 14 that anyone who had seen him had seen the Father. 
Also, we read in 118 of John's gospel, no one has ever seen God, the only God, but one who is at the father's side. He has made him known. And again, in John's gospel, Jesus says, the father and I are one. Jesus revealed God himself. And because he and the father are one, John is writing the way he does here. The second thing that comes out of this passage is that Jesus manifested or revealed life, eternal life. In his commentary, John Calvin says, first he shows that life has been exhibited to us in Christ, which as it is an incomparable good, ought to rouse and inflame all our power with a wonderful desire for it and with love to it. He goes on speaking of the eternal life by saying, if we consider what a miserable and horrible condition death is, and also what the kingdom and the glory of immortality is, we shall perceive that there is something here more magnificent than can be expressed in any words. That's the glory of this passage. Jesus Christ, the one who was from the beginning, who was actually God himself, brought us eternal life. For he himself was that life. That one who was life itself was the one that John heard, saw, and touched. As John puts it later in the fourth chapter of this epistle, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So why do I spend so much time laboring this point, which for many of us might seem obvious? What is so important about God in the flesh? Why does John begin this epistle this way? If we miss this most basic of doctrines, that God came in the flesh, in the incarnation, in the person of Jesus Christ, we miss everything. John is inviting us to ponder, to consider, to meditate, and be filled with joy by this great truth. We in the church need to get back to these basic truths with the sense of awe and wonder that John has. God came down from heaven and dwelt among us and gave himself for us. What a mind-blowing, extraordinary thing. We talk about it every week so it becomes common. Reflect on it. Meditate on it. This is the heart of our faith. God came in Christ and died the death that we deserve to pay for the penalty for our sin. He bore the wrath of God for us that we might live forever as his adopted children. That's the gospel, and it's all in Christ. If we as Christian people had the belief and the faith of John, we would live, I venture a guess, quite differently. We would not care so much for what we're missing out on in the world, what this world has to offer. We would not care so much of what people thought about us if we truly loved Christ with our whole heart, soul, and mind. We would not fear or be ashamed of telling others about Jesus. We would be looking for every opportunity 
that he provides to speak grace into the lives of others. After all, God was not embarrassed to become a man, to become one of us. Why do we sometimes act as his embarrassed children before the world when we have such a great Christ? The world is in decay and is dying. The only message of salvation for the world is this message that we find here in 1 John. It's the message of salvation coming down in Christ Jesus. And we can be confident that God will accomplish his purpose and his will through this message of Christ. Because John says, we heard it, we saw it, and we even touched it. As I mentioned in my opening remarks, this passage is sometimes slightly difficult to translate into English because there's so many things going on, so many independent and subordinate clauses. I suggest that it is John purely in a static joy over what he is proclaiming and the truth there that he just piles up one image and one idea, one on top of the other. And now finally, in verse 2 and 3, we get to the main verb of the whole passage. So again, I'll read from verse 2 and look for the second word, proclaim. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. That proclaim there is the point. All that John has said and all that he will say is a proclamation. And it is a proclamation of what God has done in Christ and the life that he brings to us, his children. In verse 3, we see that that proclamation that is from John is to proclaim what he has heard. John is giving us the teaching of Jesus, of Paul, in fact, the entirety of the New Testament He's giving us the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is a gospel that can save to the uttermost from the beginning to the end. A gospel that leads to eternal life. A gospel that is centered and grounded in the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. The gospel of eternal life that John proclaimed is the need of every human heart. Whether we know it or not, this is the longing of the heart to know our maker and creator and to be in fellowship with God. John did not have a vision or a hallucination. He was with Jesus before and after the resurrection. John knew God and God knew him. John is proclaiming the gospel for a purpose so that we might know God. There's more. I like the way an old Baptist preacher I once heard in a revival say it. You got to know that you know that you know. And that is why. In verse 3, we read that John is proclaiming this gospel centered in Christ so that you too may have fellowship with us. Who's the us? If you've noticed all along, John has been using the plural we, not the singular I, when he talks about what he's seen. He says, we have seen, we have heard, we have looked upon. 
The we refers to those that were witnesses to what John is talking about. The apostles and those who were eyewitnesses of Christ. So the us that we get to here is to remind us that our fellowship, what he is proclaiming and what he is desiring for us, is that we would have fellowship with the apostles and by extension all followers of Christ. The word used here for fellowship you may know. It's one of the few Greek words I knew before seminary. That word for fellowship is koinonia. It is a word that denotes participation with one another, an intimate association and fellowship. It is a fellowship that is committed to a common cause. John is telling us that one of the primary reasons that he proclaims Christ to us is so that we may have deep, intimate abiding fellowship with one another. How many of us this morning think about the joy of evangelism or proclaiming the gospel so that we might have fellowship with others? What motivates you and I to tell others about Jesus? For John, at least one of his greatest motivators is for fellowship, that they might have fellowship with him and the other apostles in the truth of who Christ is. May I suggest this morning that we take this opening passage and meditate on it. Do these opening verses burn in your heart with a desire to tell others about Christ? Do you desire others to come to know him so that you might have fellowship with others? He wrote this, John wrote this, so that you and I might believe and have fellowship with him and the apostles. If this sounds weird, consider the last verse of the hymn we're about to sing. The church is one foundation. Yet she, the church, hath union with God, the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. The apostles and the whole host of Christian men and women that have gone before us, we have a holy fellowship with them. And it rests in Christ. Does the joy of fellowshipping with one another permeate our church life? If not, the plan of action is not to pull ourselves up out of the doldrums, but to fall in love with the one whom John is speaking about Jesus. We are not to be led by our emotions. Our emotions ebb and flow. We are to be grounded in the truth. But that truth should burn in our hearts and inflame our hearts and our emotions and move into the will. I pray that that happens this morning with what we've been considering, that it inflames our hearts. And it inflames our hearts for fellowship and love to one another. John says this in his gospel in chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Let your heart 
be changed this morning and inflamed with the love of Christ so great that it pours out to others. By this, you will know that you are my disciples, your love for one another. If we as the church do not fellowship deeply with one another, Jesus is basically saying the world will not know we are his disciples. It's how we fellowship, how we love one another. And if the world can't see us, we are not faithfully proclaiming the gospel. And as we know, the world around us is headed for damnation. May we love one another in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus this morning. May that be the prayer of our hearts. Inflamed by the truth of who Christ was and what he did for us. As we read on in verse 3, we see that there was a purpose in John's proclamation that was not just about fellowship with the church, past and present, but ultimately that we might have fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Notice that John says our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This is present tense. Jesus had died, rose, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Our koinonia, our fellowship, is with one another, with the apostles, and now, in the present tense as well, with God. This is the great joy of the Christian life that we may now experience life with God in fellowship with Him. Do we believe that this morning? I look at my own heart and I know that many of you, perhaps all of you, are like me. We share the same ancestor that fell into sin in the garden. We are all, no matter where we are in our Christian walk, we all still struggle with sin. How we need this truth to burn into our hearts. We have fellowship with God. What would our prayer life look like if we believed that? If we took that in? How much dust would be gathering on our Bibles if we believed that? That God speaks to us through the scriptures. Do we believe this morning that communion is fellowship with one another and with our risen Christ? Or is it just a ritual that we do every week? I pray to God that we see what is here offered in prayer, in word, and in sacrament. These doctrines that John gives us are properly basic to the Christian life. And if we let them sink in deeply to our souls, we will gradually be changed by Christ from grace to grace, faith to faith. Much more could be said here. I really want to get into verse 4, but I also know that my time is waning. I want to leave you with a few final thoughts. All week long, I never tired of meditating on these verses. I poured over them and tried to let them sink in deeply. 
And my prayer this morning is that you can do the same. God desires us in this epistle to be reminded of the great work of his son for us. God desires us to remember who he is and to know him. God desires us to be filled with the life that comes only through Jesus. God desires us to have rich fellowship with one another. And God desires us to have fellowship with him through his son. And finally, as we see in verse 4, God desires us to have a deep and abiding joy that permeates our whole being. All of these blessings come from knowing him. God revealed himself to the world through Jesus Christ. If you do not know him this morning, if you do not belong to Christ and you do not know your Savior, all you need to do is call on his name. By repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, you can be saved. I know Pastor Jeremy or one of our elders would love to pray with you and talk with you. You can come to know the peace of God which passes all understanding this morning. And you can come to know the true joy of fellowship in the body of Christ and with our God. This is the message of the church and I pray we continue to share it outside of these walls. But we need it ourselves. We need to be reminded of these great truths. The world desperately needs Jesus, and that includes us. But we also need to take it out to the world. I'll close with this thought from John fifteen eleven. This is my prayer for you this morning. That Christ's joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Because you know the one and only true God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.